Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome back, fellow optimists. Sophia Tapia here, your host on the Future Positive Podcast, a podcast from XPRIZE that aims to bring you the most future-forward topics from the world's brightest minds. On today's podcast, we bring you a discussion recorded back in February at the XPRIZE Rainforest Summit between two incredible conservationists, Hindu Umaro Ibrahim and Shaila Raghab. Hindu is one of the world's leading environmental activists and geographers. She has also dedicated her life to highlighting the roles of indigenous peoples and local communities in protecting our planet. Shaila leads Conservation International's climate strategy, which builds and supports the global development and implementation of climate change mitigation and adaptation. Their fascinating conversation dives deep into people, climate, and policy, and why the world needs much more than international climate agreements. So, settle in, set your phone to Do Not Disturb, and enjoy some radical thinking. The first question to, to get us started on this discussion, um, what, what is your take on, you know, where, you know we, we know that the global process really started through the Rio conventions. The underlying premise of the Rio conventions was the idea of sustainable development, and we saw the Millennium Development Goals, and of course now we're in the SDGs and Paris Agreement and um, the post Aichi targets framework. How far or, or what, what are your, your lessons learned from the last uh, few decades of, of global cooperation on environmental action? And what do you think is the most critical need now to kind of take us into the next decade? Hi, Sheila. It's so great pleasure to be with you here in these uh, conversations and discuss about environment. So as I'm coming from indigenous communities, when we discuss about environment, we are discussing about home. We are discussing about the place where we come from, where we live from, and where we grow up there. So Shayla, to your questions, of course, we have 20 years and now more when the three Rio conventions from climate change to biodiversity to desertification convention was established. So when the was established, it was just to protect our nature, to protect our environment, to restore the ecosystem, to give the respect to the peoples and nature, to see how we can live in harmony. But what was happened? 
all what we see as indigenous peoples, we see the environment is becoming more and more critical, degraded. We see how much we lost our biodiversity. So the IPCC, who is the expert group of the biodiversity, said we lost more than 60% of our species. And I can tell you, uh, I witnessed it in chat. I know that the kind of herb, the kind of birds that we used to play with, disappear. Numbers of them disappear. And we know the space where it's, we used to be, the world wise, we have all the animals. Of course, we are in savannas. We have lions, we have rhinos, we have uh, all the giraffe. So the place that they used to be there, they move, they are not there, they are in another place. So we do experience the climate impact with uh, all the extreme weather events from desertification to all the rain season who change a lot. So all those years, we are seeing that the environment was not protected. Even we have established all those uh, areas to protect our nature, it do not work well. Until we change to the new era, of course, we come to the 2015, the Paris Agreement, when we come all together and adopt it. But before we enter to this, I really wanted to know what do you know about that? I mean, what was also your thought about all the 20 past years on the environmental issues that we passed through it? Thank you, Hindu. I think I have a very similar impression as you. I mean, I think that the whole idea of sustainable development in the 1990s was very compelling, right? It was this idea that we can't uh, develop economically as a society without considering the environment. But I think we're at a point where sustaining our previous model and previous way of organizing society isn't good enough. Sustaining what? Sustaining a system that that um, that undermine the rights of people, that exploits communities, that exploits our planet, that, that isn't a model that we should be trying to sustain. We actually need to look at transforming into a system that's regenerative, that's restorative, um, and that, that upholds the rights of people and upholds our respect for the planet. So I think we really need to move into a, a, a new phase of the environmental movement that that really advances beyond sustain sustainable development into into one that's more uh, responsive to resilience and more responsive to restoration um, both of of our connection with one another and our connection with the planet um, and I think that having the Paris Agreement um, really unify countries around a common purpose and a common global temperature target was really powerful. And we've already seen the kind of ripple effect of it's had among the private sector and really trying to devolve action to states and cities and to communities, to religious groups. So I think that the power of the Paris Agreement has really extended beyond the agreement text itself, has really created, I think, a global movement and a common understanding of our shared responsibility to address climate change. So I really hope that with the foundation of the Paris Agreement, we can really revolutionize and create a new movement and a new um, way of relating to these global processes and these kind of concepts like biodiversity and desertification. Yeah, thank you, Shaila. I really agree with you. So 
since we adopt the Paris Agreement, it's supposed to keep to 1.5 degree. That was the global goal that accepted by all the countries that signed. I remember because I was a spokesperson during the signatures of the Paris Agreement in New York from, for the civil society. I remember John Kerry who come with his granddaughter signed the Paris Agreement that give a big alarm of US join the Paris Agreement and US will make the deal good again in order to reduce the emissions. But yet, when we pass to the politic, we see that the politicians have a big power to do not act as the global citizen decide because the US fell his action as political will for the four years during the administrations of Trump. And that means we can have the global agreements, but the politicians will decide in all. So that's the part who make me really sad because we cannot be relying only to the politicians in order to act. And that's also why as indigenous peoples, we do say we have to implement the Paris agreements. And we have the article 7.5 who recognize the indigenous people's traditional knowledge and who help us to put our knowledge as a solutions to the climate adaptations and mitigations. And then we come to the decision 135 to create the platform of the local communities and indigenous peoples to see how we can uh, implement the policies and actions, how we can reinforce the capacity to the state to understand how indigenous peoples work and to indigenous peoples to say how the policies work and then how we can exchange the knowledge that exists. And we work through those, we make an action. Even the four years delayed by US, it was the four years of action by indigenous peoples and four years of action by many other, of course, the private sectors around California and all. So we know that peoples can make a big change and technology and traditional knowledge can play a big role, but it cannot play if we cannot unite it. So those are the failures of all the multilateral agreements we are having. And of course, it is the same with uh, the uh, biodiversity COP. Because when we have the biodiversity COP, we have the uh, HT target, and then we say we have to reduce the emissions. And at the end of the day, there was no political commitment. And then we step back. And that's come the division between developed and developing countries, between emerging and developing countries. And then the responsibility of each becomes so political. And who are the victims? Are the most vulnerable? Are the developing countries who are facing the extreme weather event? Are the indigenous peoples who have the home, the nature? Are the small islands who are seeing the sea rising and who can make also the loss and damage? So the industrialized countries must take an action on the climate change. And now when I see with the new administration of your country, with the Biden that coming into the Paris agreements, I am really expecting that not he play a leadership role, but how he can support the existing leadership because the developing countries already have a big leadership role. They have them NDCs that reduce the emissions and they wanted to implement the Paris agreements. So they wanted to see how the US administrations can put 
a more money in green climate fund in order to support adaptation and mitigations. How the development agency of the US can have a big money, can fight climate change and can invest in nature-based solutions. We wanted to see a concrete action that can follow the talk that they start. So I think you can have something to tell me around it, Sheila. You uh, come in and come out and you were in these negotiations. What do you think, what we should do all together to really put all the government of the world, of course, including China, India, including Africa, Asia, but including the US to do something to implement the Paris Agreement. What do you think about it? And I mean, I wanted also that you tell us because we know the local authorities and then some of the private sectors, of course, in California, they take a radical change to be a doers, to change the things. So what do you think about that? What, what do you think we can do together to move it forward? Yeah, thanks, Indu. That's, it's, I think, so incredibly exciting, the, the moment that we are at now. I mean, I think you know, seeing the, the, the possibility of the next, dec uh, next decade, but then also um, seeing the resurgence and the renewal of U.S. leadership, I think, is a game changer. And, and, and like you reflected, I think we all felt the lack of U.S. leadership over the last four years in terms of really just maintaining or sustaining a, a pace of progress at the global level. But that said, I think where we saw all of the action then was really the leadership on the part of local communities and non-state actors, which really, I think, fills me with so much optimism and hope about the possibility for, for collectively addressing climate change. And I completely agree with you that, you know, I think that uh, also nature-based solutions, which is so important to XPRIZE Rainforest, is probably the most undervalued and underappreciated response to climate change. Um, I think that that our economic system doesn't value natural capital in a way that that it, it supports all of the functions, the life supporting functions, uh, whether it's clean air, clean water, food security, all of these are dependent on ecosystem integrity and ecosystem resilience, but it's not valued. We treat the atmosphere like an open sewer. We There's no penalty for polluting and for exploiting nature. At the same time, nature stores a lot of carbon. You know, there's more carbon stored in natural ecosystems. There's five times as much carbon stored in natural ecosystems than in the atmosphere. So we can't afford to keep exploiting, destroying and damaging our nature, not only for climate change and for emissions, but also for our resilience, for our safety. I mean, we also recognize that pandemics are, the, the risk of pandemics are higher when we have exposure to forest fragments and to the edges of forests. So there's just a multitude of reasons why we need to change our economic system and the incentives um, and, and value nature more meaningfully. So I think that that's, that would probably be my main message and my main appeal to really making sure that we achieve the goals of the Paris Agreement is coming together around a common understanding of the coherence and the relationship between natural resources, biodiversity, and climate change. Um, and, and that relates also back to what you were saying about the conventions. Right now, the conventions are all separate. You have desertification, you have biodiversity, you have climate, you have sustainable development, and they're all considered separately. 
the reporting, the, the resources, the finance, everything is separate. And so what, what I really think we need to do is bring, integrate those dialogues and those discussions so that we can have a more comprehensive, coherent um, uh, uh, vision for how we transform um, our economic system moving forward and how we, we uh, really, I think, redesign our economy to be more responsive to those needs. So I have, I have a question for you related to the Paris Agreement. And, you know, a, a lot of people are talking about carbon markets right now. And those tend to be very dominated by the private sector, these conversations. But how do carbon markets and global climate finance flows affect local communities? What are both the challenges and the opportunities in the design of these markets and of carbon pricing for the local uh, local reality on, on, on financing these solutions in the long term? That's a great question, Shayla. And that's also can come to the, what uh, one of the participants said, Rul Sierra Alcorsia, who talked about the dominant divisions, the problem that's coming from the capitalism and all. So, you know, people think that when they put a price in the carbon, that can resolve the problems. But this is a capitalism way of seeing the things because as indigenous peoples and the local communities who are there, our environment do not have price. I give you an example. For indigenous peoples, forest is our supermarket. Forest is our pharmacy. Forest is our food place. Forest is our school where we are learning everything. When I tell you it is our supermarket because we do not have a supermarket that you can get a cash and go buy your food. But if the rain come, you can have your crops. If the rain come, you can have your milk and you can collect your food. And this food, we do not have free. We can keep them, dry them and conserve them for the entire year. So the nature who is our supermarket, we cannot put price on it. It is not only the carbon, it is everything. Uh, when we say nature is our pharmacy, because we do not have like a hospital next to us, we use our traditional medicine to heal ourselves, even in a very um, difficult time. So people know where are the herbs that can help to stop diarrhea, to stop to have headache, those who can help the children. So we grow up in this one. And it is not only about the carbon. It is the shelter. When you take one tree, it is not just a tree and we've lived. It is a shelter. It is the house of insects, millions of them. It is the house of bears. It is the fruit that you can eat or just the place that you can sit. It is the echo environment that it can create for you and your peoples. So how we can just put a price in one tree and say like, yes, we can sell the carbon. So this is the ridiculous discussions going on since the COP24. COP24 in Poland that they started to discuss around the Article 6, how they can maintain the carbon market. And they didn't get the agreement because the, the discussions who can include the money become very complicated for developed countries. And the move to the COP25, it was the same thing where they start discussing about the carbon prices where they can put on it. So for us, why not they do not discuss about sustainable agriculture? 
why they do not discuss about nature-based solutions. So when also, this is also a new wording because as indigenous peoples, the nature-based solution is our way of living. It's we can protect our ecosystem. So we know what is the incredibility that we are having from all our nature. And I think to just, uh, I mean, uh, give the idea on it, when we talk about the, but it is not the commodities that make it better. It is not like the palm oil that can make it, make it better or the uh, uh, timber or, or whatever the, uh, the, the product, but it is the ecosystem that can make our earth breeze. They must understand that the forest is not only the, those one, it is beyond or what we can expect. So indigenous people's land are the most diverse biodiversity. It is more diverse than a national park. So those are best in our knowledge of conserving our nature, keeping the balance of our forest. So this is the most important than just discussing about the carbon market. But that puts me to just ask you, because you discuss a lot about the carbon market, carbon financing. You discuss a lot about the nature-based solutions. You try to convince private sectors, governments to understand that forest is beyond carbon, but it's really very hard to make them understand. But you use your way of scientific way or technical way. May you tell us how it is difficult and what do you, do you think to use to really convince them to understand it is the home of indigenous peoples, it is everything for us? Yeah, thanks, Hindu. Yeah, I think that's the, the, the big question right now because you know, I think the, the ease of carbon markets is that you have a common unit. You, know, you, you, can, you can trade a carbon credit. How do you trade a, you know, the medicinal value of a forest, right? There's, there's a common currency and there's a common metric when, when you have carbon. And that there an oil and gas company can, can trade very easily with the community when you use carbon as your, your intermediary between those negotiations. So I think that carbon has been um, a, a, an easy way of communicating the value of forests, but I think there's also a danger in that because then you 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 run the risk of undervaluing or commodifying something that can't be commodified and can't be reduced just to its carbon price. And the, the issue with carbon price is that if you're only valuing carbon, you're not valuing everything else and you're suggesting that the, that the value of the forest is only related to um, the amount of carbon it stores. So we're looking at a few different ways of addressing that. One is trying to find ways of uh, increasing or building the, the ability of us to price the value of a carbon credit that provides co-benefits like livelihoods or water or biodiversity so that they can actually um, receive a premium in terms of that price and you can find more resources for communities. The second is looking at, at different types of financial instruments um, and making sure that local communities actually have the rights 
to their carbon because in many places they don't and if they don't have the rights to their carbon then it can very easily be sold on their behalf um, and they don't stand to benefit so really making sure that local communities have the full free prior informed consent and the ability to have agency and make the decision about how their natural resources are managed is is a really really important um, feature there so I think those are those are some of the ways that we've tried to address the the issues in the carbon market. But more broadly, we've also found a real need to communicate the economic value of natural capital in terms of jobs, uh, in terms of national security. I mean, these are, these are concepts that politicians can understand and really care about. And as you know, there's, there's also a demonstrable, clear connection between conflict and natural resources and the extent to which we, we can manage our natural resources more effectively. It can, it can increase stability in, in communities as well and reduce the risk of loss and damage and, and forced migration uh, which is destabilizing a lot of countries around the world. So trying to create um, a narrative that that responds to what politicians care about is another thing that that we do quite frequently in our work, uh, and I'm sure you do as well in your your advocacy around um, the UN as well. Yeah, Sheila, uh, we have some questions that coming on. Why not I propose to you, we try to respond to the questions and there is one subject which is very important. We should talk a little bit about why we are joining the board of Xprize, why we need to have the fast solutions from technology and traditional knowledge. But I'm seeing that we have some of the cautions and one of them it's coming from the Jennifer Johnson. She said that one mind to ask when we address life on land, what does an eco school look like? So if I turn the question to you, what the eco school look like for you? So, sorry, I'm trying to look for the question. What is eco-school? Yeah. Like uh, okay. education for? I mean, from my understanding, maybe I'm, I'm wrong, but yeah, from my understanding of Jennifer. So uh, the eco-school, uh, I think from my side, I think that we should introduce the environmental educations from the primary school. I give you the examples. In my community, you know, we, we do not send the children to school. Even if we wanted to send them, there is no school. So we cannot lie around that. And then I did a study with my government, like which kind of school that they want. The community said they wanted to have any school that can include from the primary, how they can manage the environment, how they can fight the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, conflict uh, between the communities that fighting over resources and how they can know how to come. So I think this is really very important to have the eco school. Of course, eco school can mean a lot of things, but for me, it's how we can integrate the environmental education from the primary school and then the children who we are going to leave this earth to them. They can understand how they can protect it. And I think for indigenous peoples, our own education from the daily educations, from our mom, our grandmom, we always learn about how we can manage our natural resources, how we can respect the trees, how we can respect the bears, how we can live in harmony among each other. And you know, as a pastoralist cattle health is moving from one place to another one. So you can have 
a boy of seven years old who can go after 100 cattle and they brood who have lions, who have all the, the, the dangerous animals, but they live together. They just don't know how to respect the time that one of the animals can come and drink the water. And that sent me to another question that sent to us by Ren Har, who asked how the OSCM can be implemented for indigenous peoples. You know, when they have a protected area, government used to just exclude indigenous people from the management. But indigenous peoples have them on protected area who are most diverse, as I said earlier. But how we can do to include them to manage it, it's to recognize the right of indigenous peoples, especially the land right. And Shaila, you said very well, we need to have the FP, the free prior and informed consent. It is not meaning that go to the communities and consult them uh, one time or inform them about your project and you say like, yes, I consult them and check box and you come with your project. Consultation, it's mean going and coming back to the communities and is planning and discussing together to understand all the concept. And it's meaning also, I can say yes, or I can say no. If I say no, then they have to respect my decisions. So free prior and informed consent can be one of the driver who can help the indigenous communities to implement the OSCM, of course, but we think the IUCN or we think all the government that what they are doing. So that's also why it is very important the post 2020 biodiversity framework must include indigenous peoples from the designing, from the beginning, how they are deciding to have the framework, how indigenous peoples can play their role. You know, it is easy to say indigenous peoples protect 80% of the world biodiversity. Okay, if they recognize we are protecting how much we are taking the decisions regarding this biodiversity. So they must revise the decision making in this biodiversity. If they have 100 state, it must be 80 indigenous peoples and 20 government. And then we have equity of 80% of the world biodiversity. So that cannot work because they are the one who are so many and we are begging running after them. So if they wanted to have the post 2020 biodiverse framework work. They have to make a place in the tables that indigenous peoples to see. They have to change the mind to respect our rights. They must recognize our knowledge and they must invest in the nature. And when I say invest in nature, it is not bringing the private sector to come in our land and invest. It is giving this money to indigenous communities to better again protect the land that they do have. So Sheila, what do you think about the questions that posted by Ren and also uh, Paul Sierra? Uh, so do you have any comments around that? And then we can talk about the solution. Yes. So I, I have one, uh, you know, of course, fully agree with everything you just said about the free prior informed consent and rights. I think those are non-negotiable and those need to be fundamental characteristics and features of these markets and of these political frameworks moving forward. One process that I think is really promising and so important as well, in addition to rights, is uh, direct access. 
So the way that the multilateral system works is, is oftentimes funding is channeled through big agencies like the World Bank, um, and funding is usually delivered to national governments. And it's, it very, very rarely will reach local communities in a way that, that um, and it, oftentimes there's intermediaries along the way. And a lot of the funding gets taken by international consultants and by other officials. And uh, where it's actually needed on the local level, it oftentimes doesn't reach or it gets caught up in bureaucracy and processes and standards. And, um, and so I think having um, easier processes for direct access are also really critical. How do you get global funding flows to actually reach communities? And I, I've, I've worked with the Adaptation Fund previously where a direct access model was created. And it was probably the most encouraging, one of the most encouraging things I've ever worked on because it takes time to build the capacity and the, the overall process. But in terms of the results, they're significantly more sustainable and they help to build capacity and they help to deliver um, more durable outcomes in the long term that are more, more responsive to the local needs and, and therefore are going to be more effective. So I would just add that direct access should be a feature as well that is integrated into these financing mechanisms so that we don't sustain a model that just delivers large amounts of funding to governments and it oftentimes doesn't move or gets used for different uses, not where it's really the most needed. Um, I also completely agree that having um, uh, environmental education should be a requirement for every student. It shouldn't be that climate change is something that you study on the side and you need a specialty. It should be uh, integrated into every discipline because you, you can't have an economy on a, on a planet when, when there's um, when you're when you're experiencing such severe impacts of climate change, we're not going to be able to keep um, the same type of financial markets or even the same type of of, um, of of structures in the future without having responsiveness to um, environmental issues and climate change. So I also fully agree that eco school is is a really important um, need moving forward. Um, looking at some of the other questions, I'm wondering, kind of bringing it back, Hindu, to the um, the X Prize and the role of technology. And I think we've talked a little bit about the mismatch between global markets and global policy and local needs as well. But how do you think that comes into play with new technologies? So when you're using drones or you're using remote sensing to make decisions about land use um, or even technologies like blockchain, um, do these um, give you hope about the possibility of accelerating progress or are you more concerned about um, the, the, the access of local communities to these technologies undermining the lack of access to these technologies, undermining their ability to take part in, in this global economy and make use of, of those technologies in the long run. What, what do you think about, about that? Yeah, Sheila, I think firstly, XPRIZE is one also of the great initiative that can help maybe showing the best practices. 
and uh, encouraging people that creating a solutions and innovations to protect our forests and to restore our biodiversity. So that's also, I think, one of the reasons you and I accept to be in the bar and then uh, try also to discuss and see if there is a wrong solution or wrong proposition coming in. So, I mean, what I think for the extra price and any other prices that coming around nature, or around uh, uh, sustainable uh, sustainable development or sustainability or environment, climate change, forest or whatever, they must respect the people's living in this nature. They cannot just have been studying the school and say, I am expert of the nature and I can apply for a prize and get a money and go to the land of someone and of course, like someone just to post it here, say like, take the pictures and then just like use the drone and then come back and write my report and do my PhD. That is the wrong way of protecting nature or being champion of the nature. So having technology, it's not a problem. We do have the technology that can respect and adapt to the environment who can be accessible. So we should use the right technology that can promote the protection of the nature that can help the restoration of the ecosystem. We cannot have just the technology that can count the number of the trees and say like, okay, this is a great project because I have thousand trees that planted over these places. It is not about this technology. It is about the diversity. We wanted to have the diversity of the ecosystem. And that's also why indigenous peoples have the indigenous species. You know, I share with you the examples that I, uh, I visited Colombia. I visited indigenous peoples doing a restoration. So they use the, the technology, of course, but they use a traditional way of doing it. They create a corridor between the primary forest, who is the indigenous forest, where indigenous species are living to the forest that they are restoring. And between these corridors, you see how the species can just move. So in like the next two years, you see that the species become diverse. 10 years, you see the forest in the primary look like the secondary that they, they, they create. So it will create a diversity. So we do not want to have the technology who can congest the numbers because our world are so obsessed about the data. We wanted to have data, we want to have a statistic, we want to have the vision. Yes, it's important. I do not say no, but we wanted to see the realities how those technology can serve the peoples that living on this place, who can include them. Because if we do also the prices who have to monitor the things and make a paperwork, I think it is excluding many of indigenous peoples who are expert of the nature. So we must make it open and inclusive, not just uh, other peoples who know how to write and read on the price and go to the indigenous peoples ask them to implement. No, how we can have it open, the indigenous peoples also can access themselves, can access the resources, can be the champion, can be recognized. They cannot learn how to do them on photos, them on videos and make the prices even more excited and make the price different. Because what's make this, this price different than others? If it cannot give access 
to the communities who do not use to get access. And that can have the concept of leaving no one behind and then leaving no one behind by building the solutions, by having the right technology. I give you the examples of what I do. I use the 3D participatory mapping, who is the exercise putting together the science knowledge coming from geographical knowledge, from technology, because we use the GPS, and then coming with the traditional knowledge of indigenous peoples. We put that together. We build the bridge between the two knowledge system and community build the map themselves. They build the model, they put all the knowledge. You know, when we finish the 3D participatory mapping, we have the satellite map and we have the traditional uh, 3D participatory map. We have our map with more detail than the satellite map. So you see how much it is so rich. So indigenous peoples can know better their own technology. I'm calling my grandma. She is the best app that I never have. Because if you have your application, you need to charge your, your phone in the electricity. You need to have access to the internet. If one collapse, if you do not have battery or if you do not have internet, your application cannot work. But if you have my grandmother, she don't need battery. She don't need internet, but she can predict the weather for you. She can predict it just by observing the, the bears migration. She can say it by wind direction. She can explain it to you by cloud position. She can tell you this cloud will bring rain, but this one will bring wind. And this one can just go and collapse. She can predict the weather over the next 12 months. So you know the meteorological information, they can predict maximum maybe a month. And also it will be not right because they can tell you it's going to be sunny and surprise it's rainy or it's going to be rainy, surprise it is sunny. So it is not exact, but my grandmom app, she can tell you it's going to rain in the next couple of hours, it's going to be true. She can going to tell you that the next 12 months is going to be a dry season. And then she know how she can collect the food to save her generations and it's going to be true. So why not we cannot rely on the two knowledge system from traditional knowledge to the science knowledge and we can build a best price ever who can protect and respect our forest. Lastly on this one, when we wanted to protect the tropical forest, do not forget that other forests are in the door of the tropical forest. So the dry forest, the oasis are very important part who are forgotten when we talk about the forest. But if we do not protect those who are making the door to the tropical forest, we will lose our tropical forest very quickly. So the price must be open to other forests who can protect the tropical forest. But Shayla, I know so you are board member. Why do you accept to be board member? What do you think will be best design of this price? Yeah, I think, um, thank you, Hindu. I think it's so exciting to be an advisory board member because um, I also see the potential of taking indigenous knowledge and getting it out to more people. So I think there's, there's a few different ways you can look at technology. One is making sure that technology helps support indigenous leadership access to resources, access to information, and um, helping indigenous people and local communities benefit from advances in technology. 
but the other is helping the rest of us benefit from the the legacy and the 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 heritage of indigenous people that we have lost because of our dis, of being disconnected to the planet so you know i've i live in california right now and we've seen the the extent of fires accelerating over the last few years and i think there's just now a recognition of of trying to return or restore some of the indigenous practices of managing land here in California. I'd like for us to see how can we cultivate that sense of understanding more broadly, not just in places where there's fires. How do we bring a recognition of indigenous knowledge to broader communities, to policies, to our broader system of land management. That is something that I think that this prize can really support and accelerate. And, and, and I think will go a long way in cultivating that connection between one another and, and, and connecting um, ourselves as humanity back to the planet in a way that only indigenous people have been able to sustain and maintain until modern days. So I think um, I'm, I'm really excited to see what all of the teams are going to come up with. And I'm really excited to, to think about the creative applications of the technologies and the tools that they will develop in order to provide this dual dynamic of, of supporting local communities, but also elevating their knowledge in a way that can be globally uh, applicable and globally used. Shayla, you are taking the discussions in a nice way. We are waiting for them to see what they will propose to us. So we have like uh, 15 or 12 minutes before to finish. I wanted you to give an advice what the people who are here should do to help protect nature, to help protect our ecosystem. Because I see also Anna, uh, Lu Anna Lucia, posted here, she said, nature is the school and the children who are in the city, they need to get out and then learn from the nature. So of course, there are different peoples, those who are born in the city or those who are indigenous peoples and who know and grow up with the nature. What will be your advice for the peoples? What you should do? Yeah, my, my advice is I always think that sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm a big advocate of applied science, of really just thinking, I think a lot of times we develop tools and we, we develop papers and they just sit somewhere on the internet and they're downloaded by a few people and they're not really used and we've spent so many hours and so much thinking. So I, I think just ensuring that the design of the approach upfront is solving a real world problem and a real world need. And, and, and therefore the design should really address that particular decision context that you're trying to influence. Are you trying to increase the, the valuation of natural capital? Are you trying to create a new asset class for um, uh, deploying funding to the local level? Are you trying to find a tool for decision-making in a particular context? Are you trying to use valuation of species as a proxy to be able to provide decision-making around food security or whatever it might be. I think tying the particular project design 
to a, a globally relevant problem um, would be my advice and I think would be a really great way of leveraging the impact of this prize more broadly. And maybe I can, I can pose this exact same question to you. What, what is your advice? What, what would you like to see as you know, five years from now that we can say this prize has accomplished on the part of all the great work of the teams? Yeah, Sheila, I mean, you really say it well. And my advice will be similar. I think people need to understand healthy nature, healthy environment. It's healthy people. It's healthy food. If we do not have our environment who is healthier, we do not be healthy at all. So if we protect nature, nature will protect us back. So we need all to play our role. Individuals can contribute a lot and as group, even better. So individuals can choose what they wanted to eat, what they wanted to use, how they can protect the, uh, uh, how to say the consumptions and productions, how they can control that. If you wanted to buy something, you can think about what you wanted to buy. It is destroying someone's life. It is uh, uh, destroying an environment. It is coming for the right way. It is helping someone. So you can make a decision. If you have a light, you should think about the importance of it. You can turn it on or turn it off. How many fuel that it's using. As individual, you can take your own decisions. Your decisions, it can be everywhere. It can impact everyone in this earth. So your decision will be very powerful. And I can also advise to the group, join all the campaign. There are a lot of campaign going around. We have a young people going at the street, asking the government accountability, asking the big company to stop emission, to go to the renewable, to turn from the fossil fuel. We have a lot of campaign going online. If you don't have time to go out, you have it in your radio or on your TV. You can join from the internet. Support indigenous peoples, support our rights, make our voices vocal to make other people understand what we are doing. You can do it in a very simple way. You can tell them that if we protect 80% of the biodiversity, so that's mean we are contributing in them life. So they must help respecting our rights. So we can all make a change. We can all make a difference. That's why I say as human being, we are all nature. So let us protect the rest of the nature altogether. It is really very important. Politicians must play them roles. They must implant the right policy, right decisions. And that's why the scientific are doing them role also. They are showing the evidence every day. And that's also why the doers who can be the candidate applying to the X Prize, they are showing the innovation every day. So that can give us an opportunity to save this generation. We do not have a lot of time. We have now nine months, nine years, sorry, nine years only to act. So please let us act all together. And this is the objective 17 of the Sustainable Development Goals, who call it to the partnership. It is time to partners between all the humanity, from the academia, who are the big university, big research peoples, with indigenous peoples, with politicians, with private sectors, if we come all together. We must show our world that we are united and we can do it. And we have the good examples because during COVID-19, 
we come united because COVID-19 touch everyone. In touch someone as indigenous person, in touch someone as homeless in the street, then it's touch Boris Johnson, it's touch President Macron, it's touch Trump. So we see how we are vulnerable about just a one little uh, 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 invisible nature. Nature can do everything. So we are part of the nature. We can be vulnerable in all places. We need to be united and act together. Shayla, let me use this last five minutes. Tell me what gives you hope and what will be the next 15 years will be a successful for you. What will show the success and what will give you hope? Thank you, Hindu. That was an incredibly inspiring address. And, and, and I think, you know, being able to be part of a community like this is what gives me hope. Um, and to see that we, in the face of insurmountable challenges, and, you know, I even just heard this term eco-anxiety lately, right? In the face of all of these exponentially growing planetary crises, biodiversity, pandemic, health, food security, we still can find common purpose. We can find uh, hope and inspiration in the local solutions in, in really, um, I think, bringing ourselves back to our, our very own humanity. And I think COVID-19 helped uh, instill and inspire that, 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 um, that sense of, of connection and purpose um, more so than I think we had the opportunity or the chance before. So I'm, I'm excited also by all of the young people, all of the, the, I think the convergence of the justice dialogue and the climate dialogue, because I, I, I felt that something was missing for a long time that we're talking about climate change in a very insular, almost in a colonial way. But especially here in the United States to see a greater degree of responsiveness to the connection between social justice and climate uh, stability and security gives me so much hope because I think we have um, the right understanding to unite around a common purpose. We're not debating whether climate change is real anymore. We're actually now debating solutions. That's what give, gives me hope and the opportunity to work with people like you, with the entire XPRIZE community, all of the other advisory members and the teams. I'm, I'm really encouraged to see about what we can accomplish together. So thank you, Hindu, for your inspiring words and for this great conversation. And thank you to the XPRIZE team for convening this dialogue. And, let, and Hindu, maybe final, final words of wisdom before we close. Thank you both. Uh, that was probably one of the most just best hours that I think any of us have listened to. I think the entire audience here could listen to the two of you talk all day. So um, you covered so many integral parts of this competition and we are so appreciative um, to both of you for your support and uh, just on a personal level, really grateful for everything that you do. So thank you so much. Oh, yeah, just to say, really, thank you. Thank you for organizing this event. I'm seeing that people wanted to get in contact with us. You know, this is also what we call for it, the partnership. I and Shayla will talk with 
everyone who wanted to talk to us. We need to talk to each other. And that's how we can build the solutions, how we can see from our failures and build it up. So we will be happy to talk with you. Of course, maybe internet can play sometime, maybe our work can play sometime, but we will always get back and response. So let us get connected and work together. That's also one of the things that give me hope because now uh, like I'm from Chad, and then I can talk with someone in Paris, in New York, and, and everywhere. We can connect and be together. So let us get this connection as realities and work with the knowledge that we have. The system must be a unique who can give a chance to everyone to interact. And uh, I think Shaila also said uh, the, uh, the climate justice is the one. So the climate justice calling all of us to come together and to interact together. So yes, uh, Peter is there, the team are there. So just so you can get through them and you can, uh, you can see, we can talk. So we are there for thoughts and we are there for action, more action. Please do your part and make an action, make it a reality. And we will be in the surprise to see how we can make a collective action together. Thanks for listening to this Future Positive podcast. If you'd like to support our show, share this episode with fellow futurist friends, and remember to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Your feedback really does help. If you want to know more about the $10 million Rainforest XPRIZE, then head over to rainforest.xprize.org to find all the details you need. This podcast comes from XPRIZE, a global future positive movement of over 1 million people and rising, delivering radical breakthroughs for the benefit of humanity. Sign up to join us and support the movement that is making a change in the world 10 times faster. Whether it's lending a hand, a dollar, or an idea, we all have a role to play in making the future a better place. The only way to get the future we want is to create it ourselves. Learn more at xprize.org. See you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.